it's a big challenge before us, as Larry said. 16 chapters in one day, 16 chapters of a book that is among the most important in the Bible. All of the Bible is breathed out by God, and so it's all vital for us. But Romans is one of those books uh, that seems to paint things much more clearly um, for us. And uh, certainly, some of us grew up in church memorizing certain passages and verses from the book of Romans. I'm sure some of you can think of those already this morning. Some of you memorized a a way of sharing the gospel called the Romans Road, walking through this book. It's a very important book, and so it's a big task. And what we're going to have to do today is kind of what you do when you take a bus tour. Uh, I went to Martha's Vineyard with my wife on our honeymoon, and we took a bus tour around the island, and you know how that works. Uh, You tour, and as you go by at 35 miles an hour, the the bus driver points out certain things just in passing, and we're going to do a lot of that today. Uh, But then at certain places, he stops the bus and points out things more specifically, and we're going to try to do that. And then on some occasions, you get out of the bus, and you actually get to walk around and really look in detail, and we'll try to do that as well. So I just want to fill you in on where we're going and how we're trying to approach this. And I want to say to you, feel free to raise your hand and ask me to stop the bus. Okay, if you're if something's um, burning in your heart that you need to ask or if you missed something or if you disagree with something or just have more questions about something, just raise your hand in the middle and say, I have a question and uh, we will pause and do that. I'm going to try to pause periodically and, and give you opportunity for questions as well. I may even give you some interactive questions along the way uh, on top of all that. But I want you to know that I want this to be as helpful as it can be for you. So we've got a lot to cover, but if you want us to stop, need us to stop, please do that. Um, I will say that in our 10-minute breaks in between sessions, since there is so much material, I feel like I need a little bit of time to uh, go back over what I'm about to share in the next session. So in the breaks, I'm going to kind of disappear but lunch, and then afterward I will be around if you have further questions. So with that, uh, let me draw your attention to your uh, sheet of notes, your outline there, and point that out to you before we dig into chapter 1. What you'll see as you flip through those pages is that uh, the book of Romans divides itself really into six parts as Paul works through a, a very logical argument and a very logical statement of the gospel. He gives it in six parts. The first is just basically an introduction. I've called it the gospel of God, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, where he introduces himself to the Romans, but then he introduces his message to the Romans, which he calls the gospel, the good news, the gospel of God. He goes on then and talks about the wrath of God. We have to understand the problem that we have with God before there will be uh, any goodness to the news that he's going to share. Then thirdly, he speaks of the righteousness of God, how we can be made right with God. What a wonderful transition between the wrath of God in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and then the righteousness of God as it comes in the end of chapter 3 and following. Then the life of God. Once we've been set right with God, how is it that God comes and lives inside of us and enables us to live this thing called the Christian life? Fifthly, he's going to step back from all of this, actually step back out of time and space and look at things from God's perspective. How is it that, that God has planned all of this out? Call that section the election of God in verses, or chapters 9 through 11. And then finally, the service of God. The end of the book, the last five chapters are very practical. How do we 
now serve this God who's been so merciful and good to us. So six sessions, roughly 45 minutes each. You can follow along in your outline. I've left a little bit of space so that you can take brief notes. Some of you may be heavy note takers, and if that's your uh, MO, that's great, but I want to encourage you, don't feel like you need to do that today. You can listen to these. They'll be on the Pleasant Ridge Baptist website, um, but I, I want you to be able to ingest what's happening, and sometimes if you're writing everything down, you may miss uh, really listening. So whatever is most helpful to you, but I hope that the outline will provide you the opportunity to follow along and not feel you have to write everything down that I say. Okay, let's pause. Larry prayed for us, but let me just pause and pray uh, for us briefly again. Father, thank you for these people from Highland Avenue and from Pleasant Ridge. I thank you especially for the people who prepared this time for us. Thank you most of all for your word, God. In days past, you spoke to us in the prophets spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days you've spoken to us in your Son. And this book is a message about your Son. And so we pray that he would be magnified, that he would be seen for who he is, that he would be worshipped in our hearts today as we study and as we think. God, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts. God, penetrate uh, the areas where we've built up walls uh, against you, penetrate the areas where we've just been confused, penetrate areas where we, we know the right things and we just need uh, a reminder to enter in and spur us to action and spur us to faith again. God, do your work, we pray today, from the book of Romans, and we pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in this initial session going to try and tackle chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which really is Paul's introduction to the letter. Uh, I've called it the gospel of God because the very first verse, Paul introduces himself, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, and then he introduces his subject, set apart for the gospel of God. So I want to just walk through and introduce you to the author of the letter, the recipients of the letter, the subject of the letter, and then the purpose of the letter. The author very obviously is Paul, right? We're speaking here of the Apostle Paul. Most of you, I'm sure, know his conversion story. In Acts chapter 9, he is on his way to Damascus, a city north of Israel, to persecute the believers there as he had done in Israel and as he is on his way to Damascus with official letters allowing him to do what he likes to the Christians, Jesus, as it were, knocks him off of his horse, throws him onto the ground, blinds him with the light of his glory, and changes him right there on the road. Now that's going to be important when Paul comes back later and talks about how God changes people. Paul wasn't on his way to Damascus to hear a sermon. He wasn't on his way to Damascus to hear somebody give a day's worth of lectures on a book of the Bible. Paul's on his way to Damascus hating God and hating his people, and God stopped him in his tracks and saved him. And that's the way the gospel works. And so we have Paul called as an apostle that very same day that he was saved, called as an apostle. This is the author of our letter. And then he goes on and he begins to tell the subject of not just this letter but his ministry. 
Verse 1 is so key. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. For the good news of God. That's his ministry. That's his whole life now, is this good news of a Savior for sinners. And it's not just his life, but it's going to be the subject of this book. Now, obviously, the gospel is the subject of every book of the Bible. Jesus is there in every book of the Bible. All the law and the prophets speak of him. Certainly, the New Testament, we see the gospel coming through very clearly to us. But in particular, this book explains how the gospel works. Very many of Paul's letters give lots of practical instructions about what the church should look like or particular problems that are being faced or heresies that need to be tackled. But this letter is really a long tract explaining the gospel and explaining how it works. And so we have the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Now that phrase is important as well. This is good news, yes. But when we describe the good news, when Paul describes it, and when we now 2,000 years later describe it, we're not mainly telling people about how to get out of hell, although we are. We're not mainly telling them about how to have a better life or to have purpose in their life or how to be happy. All of those things are benefits. But when we talk about the gospel, the main thing we're telling people is not a plan, but a person. It's the gospel which God promised through the Scriptures concerning His Son. Now, as we walk through the book of Romans, we're going to find that Paul really is mainly here laying out the plan. If you want to find out uh, about the Son in very great detail, you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You go to the book of Hebrews, uh, which is constantly showing how Jesus is the center of it all, and He's better than Moses and better than the prophets and better than the angels and so on. Here, Paul is not going to zero in on the person. He is more going to focus on the plan. But he tells us right up front, this gospel is about a person, not simply a plan, so that when he lays out the plan for us, namely what the problem is, the wrath of God against sin, and what the solution is, the righteousness of God for all who believe, and then how it works out in our life, the life of God coming to live in our souls, we remember that even though we understand a plan, and we want to understand that plan today, that the plan is subservient to the person. The plan is attached to the person. This is the gospel of His Son. So that we read elsewhere in the New Testament, Hebrews 1.1, which I prayed, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. The author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. The, the good news is about the Son. Colossians 1.18 sums up this long passage describing Jesus and it says, so that He might come to have first place in everything, especially in His gospel. What a shame if we think of the gospel or present the gospel mainly as an antiseptic for our problems, mainly as a plan that gets us out of hell, mainly as a, a set of doctrines that we want to hold to. All those things are true. But the gospel is about God's Son, who was promised, verse 2, in the prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Remember Jesus, after He rose from the dead, was on the, on the road to Emmaus, and these two uh, 
had been followers of Jesus are walking along the road and they don't understand all the prophecies about the resurrection and so they're despairing and Jesus comes alongside and they don't know who He is and He says, what's the deal? And they say, how can you say that? Are you the only person who doesn't know what's happening these days in Jerusalem? And He says to them what? How slow and foolish of heart you are not to believe all that was spoken through the prophets. And beginning with Moses, he Moses meaning not the story of Moses, but the books of Moses, Genesis, beginning with the well, beginning of the Bible. Book of well, we're, Archangel Michael. Uh, well, this is in Luke 24. Okay. Um, if you want to, you, you can turn there and look it up. But he says, beginning with the prophet Moses, he went through all the scriptures showing how they spoke of him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The book of Romans is about Jesus. So don't get caught up in all the, the details and forget about the Savior this morning. It is the Son who is the subject of this letter. So Paul, the Apostle, is the author. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the subject of all the Bible and of this book. Then thirdly, the recipients. Paul is writing to a certain group of people. It is a tract. It's a general letter. It doesn't have a lot of specific details about that particular church like many of Paul's letters do. But it is written to a particular church. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Now, as I'm sure you know, Rome was the capital of the world at this time. Rome in the days of the Roman Empire was the greatest, most important, most powerful city that has ever been on the face of the earth. Washington, D.C. is a powerful, powerful place. This country is the only world superpower, but Washington, D.C., in comparison with ancient Rome, hasn't near the power, near the prestige, near the aura surrounding it that Rome had. And so you can imagine, as Paul writes to Rome, to this one little church in Rome, that this church, most people must have felt, was a very strategic church. They're the church that's in the capital of the world. So there, there's a church, a pastor that Larry and I uh, know of, uh, who pastors right on Capitol Hill, and I think of him, what a strategic place to pastor, right next to where all the big decisions in our country are made. That was this church. Paul is writing probably in the late 50s A.D., so uh, most people say 56, 57, 58, so 1950 years ago, uh, to this church that he himself didn't plant. We don't know who planted the church. Uh, perhaps uh, when Peter preached at Pentecost and all these Jews from around the world were there, some of them were from Rome or eventually moved to Rome and began a church there. Or it could be that some of Paul's associates uh, left uh, the, the Pauline uh, mission trip and planned their own trip and went and planted a church in Rome. We don't know, but we do know as we read through the rest of chapter 1, Paul had never been there. And he's eager to get there. And he's writing to these people partially to tell them, I want to come and preach to you and benefit from you. So a letter by Paul to the Roman church about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he's going to tell them why he writes. And this will be important for us as well. Why does he write? Well, he wants to thank them. He wants to thank God, really. Because this church, verse 8, has a faith that's being proclaimed in the whole world. People are saying, have you heard about the Christians in Rome? 
the capital city of the world. Have you heard that there's a church there? It's amazing. Rome is the capital city of the world. Rome is the capital of paganism in the world. Rome is the capital of all that seems to be against Christianity. And there's a church there. And God is working there. And the people's faith is spreading around the world as people thank God like Paul is doing here for them. So he wants to write and say, Thank you, God, for what you've already done in Rome without using me. That's important, isn't it? We want our churches to do well. You from Highland Avenue want Highland Avenue to do well and to grow. I want Pleasant Ridge to do well and to grow. But Paul didn't plant the church at Rome. Paul had nothing to do with it, although we find at the end of the book he knew some of the people. But it wasn't Paul's church. And yet Paul could rejoice that this church was growing. There wasn't a jealousy to say, I'm I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and someone else has gotten to Rome before I have. Rome of all places. That's where I wanted to be. That's not Paul's attitude. His attitude is to thank God. And ours needs to be as well. When we see other brothers and sisters prospering, other churches prospering, should be like Paul. Maybe that's a word and season for some of us this morning. He writes to thank God. He writes then to give them an explanation. He would have liked to have been there before. He wished he had already come to Rome, but he hasn't. Circumstances have prevented them, and that's what he's explaining in verses 11 through 15. I long to see you. I've been prevented so far and so on. Just a note on how Paul writes here. His letters are very organized. If you if you look at the outline here, this isn't because I'm really creative and good at making outlines. It's just because Paul's letters are very organized. You can see where he's going. But look at verses 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It, it, it sounds like in the middle of that sent, that long sentence there, uh, he's, he's telling them, I want to come to you and I'm going to help you, and then he realizes in the middle of the sentence, that kind of sounds weird. Why don't I say I'm going to help you and be encouraged by you as well? And we know that the Holy Spirit inspired this, but he used Paul's personality, and it's interesting to me that as organized as Paul is, he finds himself so excited about what he's writing that in the middle of the sentence he has to add a little caveat to make sure that it's understood. So you picture Paul probably with some sort of outline at least in his head but also writing passionately so that he almost gets ahead of himself here. And that's the way all of his letters are. You find both organization and passion and we're going to find that today. I hope that we find that as we study that there will be a sense of order that we understand what's going on but there will also be passion about what we're studying. Now, the main reason why he writes, and this is where we want to spend the rest of our time here in chapter 1. At the top of the page, you see that I've called this the key verse, verses, verse 16, really 16 and 17. This is the, the driving sentence behind Paul's introduction. This is the driving reason behind why he has written to the Romans. Why did I write to you? For, because... I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, let me approach this from several angles. The first is to say that verse 16 really forms a, a, a topic sentence, an outline, if you will, for the rest of the book. The rest of the book is going to unfold in much the same way verse 16 16 unfolds. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm about to share the gospel with you. What is the gospel? Well, it is the power of God for salvation. The very first section of the book after this introduction is going to explain why there needs to be salvation. Why does there need to be salvation? Well, because we are utterly sold into bondage in sin. And it's salvation to everyone who believes. And that's the next section of the book. We may become righteous, right with God, on the basis of faith. So he's giving us his first two sections. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you find, as Paul explains sin, and then as he explains righteousness by faith, he is going to address two different groups of people. Each time, he's going to address Jews and he's going to explain to them their sins because they're religious people and their sins are going to look different than pagan sins are. And then he's going to address the Gentiles and their sins. And then when he comes to faith, he's going to address Jews and their questions about whether or not we're really righteous by faith. And then he's going to turn and address Gentiles and say, the gospel's open even to you. You don't have to save yourself by works. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. So he's laying out an outline here. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the rest of the book. Yes, sir. Do you, do you believe that Mary Magdalene and Martha and uh, Mary, the brother of Lazarus, were Hebrews? Well, it seems that they were, but really, I mean, that's not really pertinent to Romans chapter 1. But if you want to ask me stuff like that at lunch, I'd be glad to try to hash through that with you. Well, I know it's true. Okay. Well, let's let's focus here on chapter 1 of Romans, and specifically we're looking at verse 16. Verse 17 now, continuing the outline, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Again, he's he's giving his main two points. The righteousness of God that we need, and it comes to us by faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk now, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now let's go back and look at some individual words and phrases here, not just the outline in general. First, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of it. Not unwilling to share it. Not unwilling to suffer for it. And um, we won't delve into this greatly, but just to ask you this morning if you're ashamed of the gospel. If you have opportunities that you consistently don't take to share the gospel because you're afraid of what people might think, or because you just think, this sounds like a silly message. Some man that lived 2,000 years ago, yes, 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 I believe this, but imagine what this sounds like to my friend. I'm going to go and tell them with all the problems that they have with their kids, they're unhappy at work, their life is in turmoil, her husband is walking out on her, and I'm going to come to her and tell her, you know, the solution to your problems is a God that you can't see and a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God and a bunch of stuff about blood and sacrifices and, and sin and faith, you got to put your faith in Him, whatever that means. It sounds like a bizarre concept to people. And you've got to repent, and people hate that word. I can't tell my friend that with all that she's got going on. Let me just get her into some counseling. Let me just point her to social services. Perhaps she needs some medication. I can't come with this message. This will sound crazy. 
Are you ashamed of the gospel? Lots of people in lots of churches are. They think that they're helping people. But really what they're doing is they're looking for something that's more sophisticated than blood and crosses and atonement and faith and repentance and the Son of God. None of that's really very sophisticated at all. And so we look for sophisticated things sometimes, convincing ourselves that we're really trying to help people when the truth is that we're really ashamed of the gospel. You ask yourself if you are ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not. And Paul lived in a culture where they thought they were just as sophisticated as we are. The people in Athens, you remember, did nothing but talk about new ideas every day. And Paul went there and he preached Jesus to them. He preached the resurrection to them. And they thought he was crazy. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Obviously, we're going to unpack that in the rest of our sessions, but what does he mean by the gospel? If you're going to share the gospel, what do you mean? What do you need to say? If someone asks you today, What did you learn from Romans? Well, we learned about the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Let me give you four points. Share these with our church quite often. Four things that you must tell people. This is something that you might want to write down. This is not here in the notes. Four things you must tell people and that Paul is going to tell these people. First, you must tell them about God. You must tell them who God is. Because if you don't explain God, you can't just say there's a God in heaven. Everybody almost in America thinks there's a God out there somewhere. But they think he's a grandfather. They think he's a timekeeper. They think he's a scoreboard operator. They don't understand the God of the Bible. They don't understand the God who is holy, holy, holy. They don't understand the God who can see everything. The God who works all things together for the good of his people. They don't know this God. And so when you start telling them they've sinned against God, it makes no sense because they don't know who God is. It's like you telling someone that I came and and taught you and that it was really good. It doesn't matter that you drop my name or not if they don't know who I am. Even more so, a million times more so with God. You can't share the gospel without explaining God to people, that He made us, that He loves us, that He owns us, that He created us us to live for His glory. If they don't know that, then the rest of the gospel will make no sense. If God is just a grandfather in the sky who wants to make us feel good, then sin really doesn't sound like a big deal. And if sin's not a big deal, well, of course I can believe that God loves me and sent His Son for me because, after all, who wouldn't love me? I'm a nice guy. You've got to tell them about God. Maybe this is most important in our culture. Fifty years ago, people in our culture at least knew a great deal about the biblical God. People today don't know anything about the biblical God. Many of them claim not to even believe that there is a God, certainly not the one that we believe in from the Scriptures. And so Paul begins in verse 1 saying, This is the gospel of God. Now in this book, he's not going to go into great detail explaining God to the Romans because these are people by and large who are believers. Many of them are coming from Jewish backgrounds, and so they know this aspect of the story. He doesn't camp out here. But you listen as we go through, and you'll find him speaking about God and what he's like, and we have a mandate to do that in our culture who knows nothing of God. So that's the first thing. You've got to tell people about God. Secondly, you've got to tell them about sin. You've got to tell them about sin. Sometimes we share the gospel with people, 
and the main bait at the end of the hook is you want to go to heaven, don't you? And everyone wants to go to heaven. But everyone thinks that they're probably going to go there. There's very few people that you'll meet that think that they're so bad that there's no way God will possibly love them. Very few people that are living in the flesh anyway. Christians uh, know how bad we are. You've got to explain sin to them. That's difficult. That means you've got to hold up God so they can see how great and powerful He is, that they're accountable to Him. And then you've got to hold up, secondly, His standards and show people how far they fall short of His standards. And Paul's going to do that with the rest of chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and the bulk of chapter 3. He's going to talk about sin. That's why there needs to be power. Verse 16, the Gospel is the power of God because sin is great. And we need power that's not our own. We need the power of God. Thirdly, you have to tell them, obviously, about Christ. The gospel's incomplete without Christ. We can quote all sorts of Bible verses and leave out the most important thing. We can say to people, you are righteous by faith. But if we don't tell them that faith is in God's Son, if it's just faith in God nebulously, a Muslim can believe that. A Jewish person who doesn't believe in Christ can believe that. We must speak about God's Son. And here, just another aside, you you listen to your own conversations and, and, and listen and, and ask yourself, when I talk to others about the Lord, other Christians, people in my family, unbelievers, do I refer to Him mostly as the Lord or as God generically? That's not wrong. The Bible uses those terms all the time. But so do Muslims and so do unbelieving Jewish people, and so do secular Americans who think that everything's okay because they're born in America and their grandmama went to church and took them when they were little. Do you speak about God generically, or do you speak about Jesus specifically? The Gospel is about Jesus specifically. There's one God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And if the God that we speak of isn't specifically the God who has a son named Jesus Christ, then we're not telling people about the one true God. We must speak about Christ. And when we speak about Christ, we must speak about His sinless life, which is credited to our account and which enabled Him to die in our place. We must speak about His death, and we must speak about His resurrection. All of these things Paul made much of. Yes, sir? But he put on mortality to, to give us immortality. That's right. That's right. And we we need to speak about that as well, about His incarnation. I explained to people that He is God made flesh and that He did live tempted in every way that we are yet without sin and that He bore in His body our sins on the tree and that He rose so that we might walk in newness of life. We must tell them the story of Jesus. Now that old hymn that we sing is a, is a good hymn in that sense. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. We have to tell people the story of Jesus. Don't just assume that they know. Again, you can present the gospel and say you're a sinner, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell, but God's made a way. He sent His Son into the world to save you. Now believe in Jesus. And some people will just pray the prayer with you and other people will, will politely excuse you and leave going, I don't even know who Jesus is. And they're telling me to bank my whole life on Him. Again, 50 years ago, you could talk about Jesus and people knew the story. They knew about the miracles. They knew about His death. They knew why He died. They knew about His resurrection. Now they don't. 
They really don't. The first church I was at, we asked the children on Christmas Eve, whose birthday is Christmas? And the kids all kind of looked at each other, 40 or 50 kids. Now, these are all kids from unchurched homes. This is a new church start. No one knew. And then finally someone raised their hand and said, I think I have a cousin whose birthday is on Christmas. They had no clue who Jesus was. Not that Christmas is the most important thing or the date we celebrate it on, but they had no clue about the story of the baby in Bethlehem. We've got to know that as we share with people and explain to them God's Son. And finally, the Gospel, fourthly, uh, must include the necessary response. Tell them about God. Tell them about sin. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about the response that they must make, the response of faith. Verse 16 it, the gospel, is the power of God to everyone who believes. The flip side of the coin of faith is repentance. You must tell people about faith and repentance. We can tell them all about God and they can be well informed. They can know that they're sinners damned to hell without a Savior. They can hear about the Savior and recite to you all the truths about His life. But if you don't tell them that they must actively put their faith in Christ, turn from their sins, and turn to Jesus then they'll be lost. They'll be like so many people in our churches who know the right answers but who never turn to Christ. We must at least tell them. That doesn't mean they will turn, but we must tell them that they must live by faith. That quote at the end of verse 17 from Habakkuk is important. The righteous man shall live by faith. It could also be translated, maybe better translated, he who is righteous by faith shall live. In other words, we're not righteous by doing lots of righteous things. We can't do that. We won't ever accomplish that. Paul's going to explain that. But we can be righteous, declared right with God, put into a right relationship with God by faith. And faith is simply trust. If I had a chair here, I could explain to you all the mechanical things that make that chair strong. I could explain to you why the chair will hold a certain amount of weight. I could explain to you that I'm under that weight and that there's no doubt in my mind that this chair will hold me up and will not collapse. But if I never sit in that chair and demonstrate that I trust the chair, then all my words are nothing, right? Faith is not simply knowing the right answers and being able to recite it, but faith is being willing to put all of your weight on whatever it is that you say you trust. Faith is trust. Faith is rest in Jesus. It's not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe in Jesus, but then keep trying to do things to make sure that I'm right with God. It's, I'm going to give up and say again with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I've got nothing, God, except for Jesus. That's the gospel that he's going to explain to us, and he's not ashamed of it. The reason he's not ashamed of it, he says, is because it is the power of God. It is the power of God. This message, God, sin, Christ, response, and all the bullet points that you fill in underneath that is powerful. It is. We don't need a program. We don't need sophisticated counseling, although counseling is helpful. We don't need medication, although medication can be helpful. The thing that changes people, the thing that has power is the gospel so that everyone who believes may be made right with God and may, as we're going to see, have the life of God come to dwell in them and change their very life and their very destiny.
I ask you again, are you ashamed of the gospel? Don't be ashamed. It's a wonderful message. It is a powerful message. It's the message that we're going to camp out on today. The gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, one last thing before we uh, break, and that is that Paul is going to major on two of these four gospel points. It's not to say that he thinks the other two are unimportant. But as I said, he's writing to people who, who know the book. And so he's not going to camp out on explaining all the attributes of God. Don't let that convince you that you don't need to do that because you deal with a very different kind of people in your workplace and in your neighborhood. He's not going to camp out there. He is going to camp out on sin, the very next section of the book. He is going to speak a lot about Christ. He's constantly saying, in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, but he's not going to tell us the story. He's not going to go through in great detail and tell us about Jesus' incarnation, tell about his miracles, tell about his sinless life, tell about his death and his resurrection. He's not going to go into detail about those things. But remember that we must, again, for people who don't know what the Romans knew and what we know, and he's going to camp out a great deal on the response. This book, one of the great themes, maybe some might say the central theme of this book is that we may be right with God on the basis of faith in Jesus. So Paul's going to camp out on sin and response. But you keep in the back of your mind this God who ordained the gospel. And you keep in the back of your mind, in the front of your mind, this Jesus who made it possible. Let's pray and then we'll break for ten minutes and we'll come back and begin to think about the wrath of God against sin. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, God, that if we're here today and we say to ourselves, I don't know that I believe, I don't know that I'm resting in that chair, I don't know that I'm willing to put my weight fully on Jesus, the weight of my sin, the weight of my past, the weight of my future. Remind us that it is the power of God for everyone who believes that we may believe today. And God, I pray especially as we walk through Romans and we see that it deals mechanistically with the gospel, that it explains mainly how the gospel works and doesn't zero in on the person of Jesus, I pray that in our hearts we would constantly have our minds moving back to the cross, moving back to the sinless life of Christ, moving back to His resurrection, God, so that we don't simply come away with a better idea of the scheme of things, but of the Savior. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.